Good morning. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, and so good to have you here with us today. Um, and as you know, last week Sunday we got started in the book of Esther. All right. Yes. And so today we'll be doing Esther chapter three and four. And in chapter three, we'll see the rise of Haman, a man who harbors a deep hatred towards the Jews. We'll see about his plot to destroy them and the response of Esther and Mordecai. We'll also see how God's providence is at work, even in direst of situations. Let us open in prayer before we jump into the passages today. Father, we thank you for how you've ministered to us already, God. And so as your vessel, Lord, I, I submit to what you have in store for us this morning, God. And so teach us by your word, instruct us by it, God, correct us by it, Lord. But may that which we hear, may we not just hear it, God, but may we obey, Father. In your name we pray, amen and amen. So before we jump into chapter 3, let us pick up from the end of chapter 2, verse 21. And I'll be reading verses 21 to 23. If you have your Bibles, feel Free to turn there to Esther. That's in the Old Testament. If not, it will be up on the screen for you. It says, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. So we see this theme continuing where God is providentially placing his people. Esther has found favor with the king and he allowed Mordecai to be in Susa to begin with. And then to be at the gate to uncover the plot and have his name written down in this book. And as Pastor Dan mentioned last week, at first glance, these things might seem like coincidences. However, as we'll continue to see throughout the book of Esther, that is not the case. And all these events play a part of God's plan to bring about the salvation of the Jewish People, And with that, let's turn our attention now to Esther chapter 3. And so chapter 3 introduces the main antagonist of this story, Haman, and sets the stage for the conflict that will drive the plot forward. We won't read through all of the chapter, but I'll highlight a few things here. The chapter begins with King Xerxes promoting Haman, a descendant of Agag, to a position of great power and authority in his kingdom. And the text emphasizes Haman's status by listing all the privileges that the king bestowed upon him. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of Esther 3. It says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. 
But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So the king's order states that everyone should kneel to Haman. But Mordecai refuses to obey the decree. And I'm like, well, okay, time out. Let's examine this a bit more. Why is that important? So King Xerxes promoted Haman. Well, what's a big deal here? And did you catch whom Haman descends from? What group was he part of? We just read it. Correct. Ten points for you. There we go. He was an Agagite. And Agag was an Amalekite. Now, why is this important to note? Well, let's track some biblical history here. As you know, there is, in the book of Exodus, a time when God parted the Red Sea and the children of Israel walked through on dry land. You're familiar with this story. They were escaping the Egyptians after God had delivered them from that oppressive nation. And after Israel got through the sea, they went to Mount Sinai to receive the law. But between those two points, the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, something happened. They were attacked by a group known as the Amalekites. This group was actually some of the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And this is a scene in which Joshua fights the Amalekites while Moses holds up his staff. And at the end of the scene in Exodus 17, you can find this there, God promises to have war with the Amalekites from generation to generation and to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Later, when King Saul was over Israel, God wanted to punish Amalek. He wanted Saul to utterly destroy all that belonged to Amalek, even his posterity, which included this king named Agag. But what did Saul do? Well, what did Saul do? He didn't obey. Saul didn't obey. Do you remember this? He allowed Agag to live and didn't carry out the utter destruction that God had planned. In fact, the prophet Samuel had to kill the captive king of Amalek because Saul wouldn't do it. And certainly, some of Agag's progeny lived on. And that is how we have Haman now. So Haman, a descendant of the mortal enemies of God's people, so to speak, is here in this story. And now he's promoted by King Xerxes to a place of supreme power. And this doesn't bode well for the Jews. And notice that the king commanded that all bow to Haman. But did Mordecai? No. In fact, he refused to do so, even when prompted continually by the king's servant. They asked him in utter disbelief, are you really disobeying the king? And I get the sense that Mordecai is not one to stir the pot. He's not one to rock the boat, so to speak, as we say. He's no common rebel looking for any excuse to disobey. After all, he's the one who uncovered the conspiracy on the king's life at the end of chapter 2. And so this is very unusual for Mordecai to not obey the king's command, especially after having knowledge of what happened to those two guys. Remember, they were impaled. We just read that. And people who study this book, the book of Esther, make a big deal about Mordecai's possible reasons for not kneeling. 
some wonder if he was just being stubborn. Others think he had good reason to not kneel. Let's keep reading and see if we find out why. Verses 3 to 6 of chapter 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So the king's servant keeps asking Mordecai why he won't kneel. Why won't you kneel? And this constant questioning finally reveals something very interesting. Mordecai wouldn't kneel because he's a Jew. And you know, isn't it interesting how sometimes, even in our own lives, we might be tempted to kind of minimize our association with God's people based on the situation we're in. And, and maybe you don't do that now, but maybe at some point in life, or maybe you still do feel the pressure of that, we tend to minimize our association with God's people because either I will not fit in over here or either they will speak ill of me here or either you are too holy or you pray too much or you're just being super Christian about everything. And sometimes I think that God's, God puts pressure on us in order to evoke a confession from us. A yes, Please stop bothering me. I am one of them. I am a Christian. It's almost like I feel like something like that unveiling here with Mordecai. Now, do you see how God's enemy or how the enemy of God's people reacts? Do you see what Haman did? How does the enemy of God react? When Haman learns of Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him, he offers to pay a large sum of money into the royal treasury in exchange for the king's approval to annihilate the Jewish people. Haman also implies that the Jew Jews are a threat to the kingdom's stability. Let's look at verse 8 of this chapter. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. And they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So now he's looking out for the king's best interest. But really, it's a hatred that's in his heart. And I want to remind you today that as Christians, we are not immune to the schemes of the evil one. Satan seeks to destroy us just as Haman sought to destroy the Jews. However, Mordecai was a godly man who loved and feared the Lord. And he refused to bow down to Haman because he knew that as a Jew, as a Jew he could only bow down to the Lord. Mordecai's fate was unwavering even in the face of death threats. He refused to compromise his beliefs and was willing to face the consequences. 
when you stand up for your faith today, you bet there are going to be some consequences in the spaces that you're walking into. And as we know, in our culture today, hate corrupts, hate harms, hate wounds, hate kills. We see it all around us in various ways in our world, from school shootings to cultural wars to racial slurs to bullying on the playgrounds. But even in the midst of what may feel sometimes like a thorny thicket of hate, God's people can radiate God's love, peace, gentle spirit, and healing calm. That is you, Lifespring. God is powerfully at work in our world, even when signs of God's presence may feel most absent. We must keep our faith and trust in the Holy Spirit, even when times feel barren and even when the world feels bleak. We must be unwavering in our faith. Amen? And this brings me to my first point. We need unwavering faith. Unwavering faith. See, even though obstacles seem to rise in our path, even though we may be fooled at times by the hands of the world, His love will always prevail over evil in the end. So I encourage you today, Lifespring, keep trusting in Him. Because what the world needs today aren't fickle believers. Rather, they need to see the unwavering boldness of your faith into the spaces that you're walking into. We must remain steadfast in our faith and refuse to compromise our beliefs. We must trust in the providence of God, knowing that He is working all things for our good. And I don't know how that works, truly. And I'm sure that many of you have walked through things and you're like, Lord, how does this work together for my good? But He's been doing it from the beginning of time. Put your trust in Him. Put your trust in Him. And we must also be vigilant and watchful, knowing that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Let me just define what I mean by unwavering faith. Because that could easily go off on the deep end. And I don't want that to happen. Alright? So unwavering faith for a Christian today means having a steadfast and unwavering belief in God and His promises regardless of the circumstances. It means trusting in God's goodness, sovereignty, and faithfulness, even when things are difficult or uncertain. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Unwavering faith is a confident and unwavering belief in God and His promises, even when we cannot see how things will work out. It is a deep trust in God's plan and purpose for our lives. It involves walking in obedience to God's commands, even when it requires sacrifice or going against the norms of society. Even when it is difficult or unpopular, we must be willing to put aside our own desires and preferences and submit ourselves to God's will. James 1.6 says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Unwavering faith is characterized by a belief that does not waver or doubt, even in the face of difficult circumstances. Church, trust in His plan for you. Romans 4.20 and 21 says, 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Unwavering faith is belief that is fully persuaded that God will do what he has promised, even when it seems impossible. It involves believing in God's promises and standing on them, even when circumstances seem to challenge them. It is standing at the Red Sea and believing that he will part the Red Sea for you, church. Do you believe that this morning? It believes believing in God's promises and standing on them, even when the circumstances seem to challenge them. Even when the circumstances seem to challenge him. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Are you walking through that season right now? We must trust that God will keep his promises and that he is faithful to his word. Church, believe in God's promises. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Unwavering faith allows us to endure trials and difficulties, knowing that God is with us and will never abandon us. It's the steadfast commitment to hold on to the hope we profess even when things are difficult or uncertain because we know that God is faithful. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So church, let's be unwavering in our faith and commitment to the Lord in all these areas. And more. Amen? We need unwavering faith. Let's continue with the story of chapter 3. So the king, who seems to be more concerned with financial gain than with the moral implications of such an action, grants Haman's request and gives him a signet ring that allows him to issue decrees with the full authority of the king. So Haman's plan is set in motion. And a decree is issued throughout the kingdom that all Jews are to be killed on a certain day. Verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This chapter then ends with the city of Susa in turmoil and the Jewish people mourning. And that brings us to chapter 4. So chapter 4, here we go. In Esther chapter 4, we see the turning point of the story where Esther learns of Haman's evil plan. And we'll be reading from verses 1 to 14a. So bear with me here. Might have to take some deep breaths as we go through this. It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. 
In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloths and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends a gold scepter to them and spares their life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. This brings me to point two. Unwavering faith leads to action. Unwavering faith leads to action. Mordecai's unwavering faith leads to a call to action. And it should challenge us to consider how we can utilize our positions and influence to advance God's purposes and to help those in need. Mordecai's words are a reminder that God often places us in specific situations for a particular purpose, and we should be attentive the opportunities he gives us to make a difference in the world. Let's go back to the passage and I'll briefly summarize verses 15 to 17 of chapter 4. So Esther's initial response to Mordecai's request is to ask all the Jews to fast and pray for her for three days. This act of humility and submission to God is an essential aspect of facing adversity. As this demonstrates Esther's dependence on God's power and a need for his guidance in all situations. Fasting and prayer are powerful tools for connecting with God and seeking his wisdom and direction in our lives. And it is also a reminder that our strength comes not from ourselves. And Esther's willingness to fast and pray 
demonstrates that she understands that the battle is not hers, quote-unquote, alone, but it is God's. And she's walking this out in obedience. And so she asks authors to come and pray with her, to be fasting with her. Point three, unwavering faith is needed when facing adversity. Unwavering faith is needed when facing adversity. I want to jump back to Mordecai's famous words to Esther in Esther 4.14. As they are powerful words and they are a powerful reminder of the role of faith in facing adversity. He tells Esther, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And this statement is what we know the book of Esther to be all about. And it acknowledges that God's providence is at work in all circumstances. And we must have faith that He is in control. Mordecai's faith in God is evident in his belief that God will not abandon His people even in the face of seemingly insurmountable challenges. Mordecai's words remind us that God's purposes are often beyond our understanding and our role is to trust in His sovereignty and have faith in His plan. As we face challenges in our lives, let us be reminded that our faith in God is not just about believing in Him, but also trusting in His power to work in our lives and on our behalf. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I'd say that there's an unavoidable duty to fulfill as you are, each and every one of you in here today. Those of you tuned in online, you are His instrument for such a time as this. You are His instrument for such a time as this. Consider the text. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, review your own history, Esther. See the steps that led you here. Haven't you asked yourself, Esther, through all the heartbreak and sorrow, sorrow of those days, what God was doing? Could it be that you have come to the kingdom for just this moment? You are in a unique place by the providence of God with unique opportunities and responsibilities. Don't you see the duty that rests upon you to which you are now being called? You are his instrument for such a time as this. And it's a question worth asking ourselves today. For what has God brought me to? What has God brought you to in this moment and to this place? Who has God made you to be in His wise providence? What are the unique opportunities that you have arising from the network of relationships you have developed? How is the path of duty illumined for you by the overruling sovereign providence of God at work in your life? Those were very much the kind of questions I believe Mordecai was asking Esther to consider, to begin to wrestle with, and to face up to. And as verse 15 and 16 makes it abundantly clear, there were questions that did not wait long for an answer. Because God seems to have taken hold of Esther's heart 
She resolves her fears. Fears. She makes her choice, and she ups now for solidarity with the people of God, no matter what waits for her by way of consequence. She calls the people of God to continue fasting in earnest. This time, specifically with a view of God's provision for her, and she will join them as together they wait upon the Lord for the next three days. And then in verse 16, Esther comes to the immortal declaration, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That is strong resolve. That is strong resolve. It is the decisive moment, not just in the narrative, nor even in Esther's life, but in the life of God's people at that point in history. And so what is the resolve that you must take in your life, in your Christian walk, for such a time as this? What is the thing that He has been calling you to? Maybe that He has been bringing up and promptings in many different ways, in various ways that He's been speaking to you. Or maybe it's a dream that has died. And maybe it's something that the Lord has asked you to do. What is that resolve that you need to take? To take the next step. Church, the story of Esther is a powerful reminder of God's providence and sovereignty in the lives of His people. The sovereignty of God is a refuge in which to rest secure. Rest secure. A safe harbor in which to anchor your faith amidst every trial. A hiding place in the storm. Mordecai knows that God, because He's Lord over all things, utterly and comprehensively and exhaustively sovereign will not and cannot fail to keep his promises and uphold his covenant no matter what odds are arrayed against him. You know, before I continue, we're getting ready to close here real soon. Many of you are familiar with this story of when one hope came over and we joined the life spring. And I just want to retell some of that story because the things that took place last week, Pastor Dan talked about a bunch of things that happened in his life that has led him to this moment. And I think that as a church, I'll segue into something here in a bit. I wasn't planning to do this, but I felt like the Lord told me I should do it at the end here. I came to Life Spring in 2018 by way of Belize, the Caribbean Sea, <laughs> and have been in Edgewood since then. I was sent out from Life Spring to pastor in Kent to develop relationships with people I had never met before. I didn't know. And we were doing what the Lord had called us to. We were ministering in the area. And Pastor Dan reached out to me. He said, have you found a building yet? I told him, no. He knows we have been looking for a building because when I first came in, I told the church, I told him one of the first things we need to look for is a building because we have people who are coming, faithful people, but it was one. I think it's one of the, the second historic building in the state of Washington because it was one of the second original schoolhouses that was ever built in the state. 
And so you can't do changes to it, but the steps are very steep going down. They're very steep going up. And we have elderly people who are faithfully coming in. But we were walking through a time of COVID. And so no one was letting you allow or allowing you to use their building. Our rent was too high. We're a smaller congregation. And he reaches out and said, have you found a building? I told him, no, we probably checked with 10 to 12 different places. And the only one that seemed to have panned out didn't pan out. He said, well, what do you think about us doing this together? And we went to our district, to our bosses, and started a conversation with them. But we got both our councils involved, and we had to sit down. We talked through things. And I remember we were, as we were casting this vision and just saying, we believe we're being obedient to what the Lord is calling us to. There were confirmations on both sides and, and, and people from both of the councils saying, we believe this is how the Lord is leading. And so... At the start of 2022, that's what we did. We joined efforts. And we've been moving forward in our walk with the Lord. But I also believe it's been such a refining and beautiful process for both of us. And we move forward as one congregation. Now, why do I say that? I say that because last week we had 24 hours of prayer. And many of you signed up for that. And I will be reading a couple of things here. But LifeSpring is now in a place whereby we are looking for a building. We believe that is what the Lord has called us to. That is what He is asking of us. We've been faithful. We've moved so many numerous locations. We don't own anything. But we believe this is what the Lord has called us to. And so as an act of faith of moving forward in that, It's not that there's anything special about me or Pastor Dan here. It's that we want to be obedient to what the Lord is calling us to. And each of you, the Lord is asking you to do things. And I'm asking you to be obedient to that which the Lord is calling you. Because when you're obedient, He will pave the path ahead. And He will instruct you as the path that you need to take. And so as a part of that, because we're praying and we're believing for a building... We have about 22 months left on this lease. We started this 24-hour of prayer. It's the first thing we'll be doing throughout this year when it comes to prayer. And I'm very excited about this. But I wanted to take this time, and I'll invite the worship team up at this time as well. I wanted to read to you a couple of things that the Lord spoke to various people who signed up. For those slots to pray. And I want to encourage you. As I read this. There will be opportunities in the future. That will come up for everyone to join in in prayer. But the first one says here. God was speaking and moving in many different ways. During my hour. 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Were you sleeping? This person was up praying. Here's what they believe the Lord shared with them. One image that kept coming to mind was a large flame in a white bowl. Not exactly sure what that means yet, but I saw it several times while I was praying. One of the things the Lord spoke to me very clearly was the beginning of the 23rd Psalm. Specifically, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here's what I wrote during that time. The Lord is my shepherd, I, the Lord, lead you. You are my flock. I am leading you into a new thing, a new pasture, but you must be willing to follow. You shall not want. When you follow the shepherd, you shall not want. 
I have not left you to wander in the wilderness. I am leading you to green pastures and still waters. But you must follow me, wait upon me. I am the shepherd. Fear not, you shall not want. Stand on my solid foundation. The mountain will be moved. There's another one here. During our awesome 24-hour prayer, the Lord gave me a beautiful picture. It was a table fully set and eloquently ready for the guests. I wasn't looking so much at the whole length of the table, but of the plate in front of where I stood and to the left and right. I knew it was for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and it was time. The plate before me was mine, but the one on the left and the right belonged to guests to be invited. He is coming soon for his bride. Glory to God. Then they recorded this scripture, Matthew 22, 8-10. Then he told his servants, We have a wedding banquet all prepared, but no guests. The ones I invited weren't up to it. Go out into the busiest intersections in the towns and invite anyone you find to the banquet. The servants went out on the streets and rounded up everyone they laid eyes on, good and bad, regardless And so the banquet was on, on, every place filled. One of the things we've been talking about is that we, we really feel that it is a season of now here at LifeSpring. And so we have new faces that have been coming in. We have new people plugging into life groups, serving in different areas. We did this first 24 hour of prayer. In the month of March, we'll be focusing on or missionaries. But if you want to read the other things that were recorded, the other words, I'd invite you to stop by our Welcome Center. There's a copy of that there. Well, copies. Why do I read that? I believe this morning, and I'm going to ask all of you to stand here, and as the band continues to play quietly, I know if you're visiting this is probably going to be uncomfortable. If you've been coming here for a while, this is still going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to get into groups of four and five, right where you are. And I want you to spend some time praying regarding our future as life spring. Because I do not believe that the Lord has brought us this far to disappoint us. And I believe that many of you feel that in your spirit, in your being. And so I don't want you to take too long on this. And we're about to do that. And I'll close with this. I want to remind you, church, that you are his instrument for such a time as this. Your life rests in the hand of God, of infinite faithfulness and goodness and grace. Whatever you're walking through, you could not be safer or more secure. You're here for such a time as this. So let's gather in groups of four and five. And maybe one or two of you can just lead out in prayer. And let us pray specifically about our future as a church. What it looks like that, that it will be used as a tool to disciple people, to reach the lost. And the Lord will do His good work through us. Amen.